Father in heaven, we are so thankful tonight because the door of grace is open. There's still room in the kingdom. There's still power in the blood to forgive and to create new life. And yet, Father, we feel the urgency of this moment because we know that door is beginning to close. And so we pray, confront all of us with the power of your grace tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight, you're invited to join an expedition. It's not to survey a sunken ship, or to comb through a jungle, but to discover a raging river that creates life and calms fear. It's a mighty river that flows far deep and wide, and all of us are in its path tonight and throughout this week. And the question is, are you willing to be completely immersed within its life-giving flow? Ezekiel chapter 47 is the text. But first, the context. The kingdom of Judah stands at the brink of total collapse because they are stuck in a perpetual cycle of rebellion against God. They have defied his authority. They have defiled his temple. They have broken their covenant with him, they have provoked God to jealousy and anger time after time, generation after generation, and so judgment has arrived at their doorstep. And the instrument of discipline that God uses is Babylon. As the judgment of God descends upon Judah, the kingdom is engulfed in chaos, in war. Judah is decimated across three military campaigns led by the Babylonian Empire, and thousands of Jewish captives are taken. And then the unthinkable happens. Jerusalem has fallen. That great city is captured and pillaged. And then the impossible happens. The temple is destroyed with the glory of God long having departed. The Jewish people are living as refugees and exiles in a godless country. The darkness and the desolation of their situation is traumatic and numbing. They feel like a conquered and a defeated people victimized by their own disobedience. Their emotional pain is paralyzing as they wallow in grief and regret. And they think, our best days are behind us. And they look out across the horizon and they envision home. And they see what might have been. But now it's all lost. And the prophet Ezekiel is part of this refugee camp. Throughout the latter portion of this book, Ezekiel receives visions and revelations that illustrate that there's still reason to hope because God and his grace will still bring restoration and renewal not only for Israel but for all of creation. 
And so the best is yet to come. Tonight, I'd like to examine the last vision that Ezekiel experiences, which actually begins in chapter 40. The temple in Jerusalem has already been destroyed, but Ezekiel sees a vision of a new temple not made by human hands, and he receives a personal tour through this majestic place. His senses are overwhelmed by the beauty and the holiness of this vision, and he takes in every moment. His entire being overflows with peace and joy. His mind is captivated with wonder and amazement as he considers the profound future implications of what he sees. But above all, Ezekiel is humbled and undone by the reality that God's glory is in this place. And so we join the last portion of this tour in chapter 47. But first, let's meet the tour guide. This introduction is in chapter 40, verse number 3. The Bible says, And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. The word brass here would express the brilliance and the radiance of this person. It speaks to the beauty and the purity that cannot be found in human flesh. This is a person who is uncontaminated by human imperfection. This is the angel in the tour guide. And he holds two measuring tools. The Bible says a line of flax. Now this would be used for larger measurements involving geography. In a reed, this would be used to measure walls and structures. And so we begin in chapter 47, verse number 1. The Bible says, afterward, and we'll stop there. Ezekiel just observed and examined the places in the kitchens where offerings were prepared and made ready to be consumed. And so this tour transitions from the inside to the outside and right near the temple gate, the door into the temple. And so the Bible says in verse number one, afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east and the waters came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. This temple complex is majestically situated on a high place and the entrance into the temple is facing east. Chapter 40 gives us some architectural specifications of this place, and I'd like to mention just a couple of them because they help us identify and envision what he sees. The Bible says that this temple complex had the appearance and the structure of a city. The infrastructure of this place was incredibly large. There is a wall about 10 feet high, that frames in the outer perimeter of this place. There are three gates 
that allow entrance into the outer court from the outside, a gate on the north, a gate on the south, and a gate on the east. And the structure that frames in each one of these gates is 83 feet long, 42 feet wide, and 100 feet high. You would have to walk 175 feet across the outer court to reach the inner court. There would be three additional gates, one on the north, one on the south, and one on the east. Eventually, as you step in to the inner court and beyond the altar, you would see the temple porch with two columns that frame in the beauty and the splendor of the temple itself. In verse number one, Ezekiel is standing at the door of the temple and he is overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty of this incredible place. But then something very unusual happens. The Bible says in verse number one, Behold, waters issued out. Ezekiel is astonished because there is a steady stream of water that comes up from under the doorway It drops along the temple porch and it passes on the south side of the altar which was situated just before the temple on the east side. This is a very curious sight. And it seems that one of the questions that he wrestles with, where is this water going? Where is this flow heading? So this is what they do in verse number two. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward And led me about the way unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. They leave the inner court by using the northern gate. They walk across the outer court and reach the eastern gate. And what did they see? The Bible says in verse number two, waters ran out. Now the word ran here is very interesting and nuanced. And what it means is that this water just trickled. This is the slow flow of a gentle stream. It just sputtered out. It's gentle. It's quiet. And it flows downward and towards the east. In verses 3 through 5, the Bible describes the measurement process and the unusual nature of this river. In verse number three, and when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits and he brought me through the waters and the waters were to the ankles. He measured a thousand cubits. This would be 1,750 feet. We can convert that to three tenths of a mile. And at this point, the waters are just a few inches deep up to the ankles. And so Ezekiel walks this measured distance, and as he makes his way, the water splashes in cups around his ankles, and he leaves a small ripple in his wake. And the sound of footsteps in the water echo all around him. And he walks at a steady pace. And so to walk three-tenths of a mile, maybe five minutes, maybe six, and so he continues on his way. In verse number four, again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. 
at this point, the water is between 18 inches and two feet deep. Now, this walk is slower. And maybe his legs strain from the resistance of the water. But the current is at his back, and he walks at a slight decline, and so he continues to make his way. In verse number four, again he measured a thousand and brought me through, and the waters were to the loins. At this point, the water is about three feet deep up to his waist. And maybe now he walks with his arms raised, his clothes are saturated. And he strains and he exerts effort and energy for three-tenths of a mile. And really, he doesn't walk. He more does a waddle as he shifts weight from side to side to make his way across. And then lastly, afterward, he measured a thousand in verse number five. And it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. At this point, at some point, the waters rose from three feet to four, five, six, seven. Ezekiel cannot keep his footing without being completely immersed within this flow. And so he stops and instinctively he looks around him and grabs something to steady his posture. And then I love it in verse number six. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Are you taking this in? Are you absorbing this experience? And Ezekiel here is maybe neck high in water. And he looks around and he sees a river. It's raging, it's surging, it moves with power, and it can't be stopped. And he feels the current pushing against his back. And so in verse number six, then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Ezekiel is at the edge of the river, maybe not in the water, and he thinks this through. There is a fountain in the temple, and it started as a trickle, but now it's a raging river, and it becomes deeper the further out it goes. And this water looks for the low places. It soaks in and fills in every crack, every crevice, every hole, every void, every empty place. And as Ezekiel walks along the bank of the river, along the side, something incredible and very unexpected happens. In verse number 7, Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river, were very many trees on the one side and the other. In an instant, there is a splash of color and a sparkle of life that animates all around him. It's like a painting that comes to life. Lush, vibrant fruit trees spring up in an instant. Not one, not a few, but many. 
This is the true definition of miracle grow. The energy of renewal permeates the air. And it's like he's walking in a garden that was lost, but now it's restored. But his mind is still, where is the water going? Where is this flow heading? And we finally receive the answer in verse number 8. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert. These waters invade the wilderness. They overrun the places of desolation. They saturate the dry and barren places, but the ultimate destination, in verse number 8, and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. It's the Dead Sea. That's the target, and that's the goal. The Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. It is the lowest point on the planet. And just for reference, the Death Valley Desert in eastern California is the lowest point in the U.S. at 282 feet. That's nothing compared to 1,400 feet below sea level. Nothing can survive in the Dead Sea except for bacteria. Now, if we took a cup and filled it with water from the Dead Sea, would you drink it? It's salt water. I hope you would say no. But if you did, and if you continue to drink it across a short period of time, your body would be severely dehydrated. Your muscles would cramp up. You would be nauseous. Your blood pressure would rise and you would have complete organ failure. But what if we took that cup and just poured half of that salt water out and then filled the rest of it with fresh water? We diluted it. Would you drink it then? No, because it's still harmful for you. But this water does the impossible changes the salt water to fresh water. It doesn't dilute it. It changes the actual composition of the water. It becomes transformed. How incredible is that? And then in verse number 9, we see the power of the water. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. These living waters resurrect, reanimate, revive, renew, revitalize. These living waters have the power to vanquish death itself. So would you drink this water? If we took a cup and filled it up with this living water, would you drink it? I hope you'd say yes, because I can't think of anything better. In this cup, this water is being offered to you tonight and throughout this week. This is the saving waters of salvation. 
but I know that you have your eye on another cup. Sometimes you're mesmerized by the other option. And we can call it the salty water of sin. And it's advertised to be the most consumed beverage in the history of the world. It tops the charts. This salty water of sin is served in a silver cup, of course. Because it represents the very best that the world has to offer you. And you've done this a thousand times before. You grip that cup and you bring it to your face and you are disgusted all over again. Because as you look at this water, it's muddy and clumpy and dirty and filthy. It looks like sludge. There is a thin layer of ooze and slime that congeal toward the top. There is a mystery foam that just kind of rides along the surface. But more than anything, you are repulsed at the stench that comes from this water. It smells like a swamp. You know how you handle this. You pinch your nose and you consume it completely. Why would you do that? Because for a moment, for one millisecond, you feel the exhilaration of gratification for just a moment, and then it's gone. And then two horrible things happen. This water sits heavy in you. It's a burden. It weighs a thousand pounds, and it torments you. But secondly, your thirst intensifies. You see, you thought it would quench it. You thought if you took maybe a drink or two or a couple, but it doesn't. And so you keep drinking, and pretty soon you become addicted to the salt water of sin. And maybe you say, I didn't know it'd be like that. I thought if I just tried a little. But didn't you look at the warning label? You say, there's no warning label on this silver cup. Of course there is. If you look at this cup through the lens of God's word, it simply says, as bright as day, consuming this water is fatal to your health. And what that means is that it decimates you, body, soul, and mind. And worst of all, it's not even free. Because when time's up and when the tab is due, it costs you everything. But you do have another option. The alternative. The saving waters of salvation, they're also in a cup. You're not impressed by this cup. It's just a carved wooden cup. You may even say it looks a little too plain. But the water inside is crisp and clean and cold and refreshing. It tastes incredible. It's thirst quenching and it's freely offered to you. Tonight, before this sermon is finished, you will choose one of these two cups and you will drink it. And so we see the illustration of the vision and now for the interpretation. In the Old Testament, the temple was synonymous with the presence of God. And the Messiah is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christ is the very personification of the temple. 
of God's presence. In John chapter 2, verse number 19, Christ refers to his body as the temple. And so Christ represents the temple depicted in this vision, a temple with a fountain. In John chapter 4, Christ told the woman at the well in Samaria, if you ask me, I can give you the gift of living water that will fill every part of who you are and it will remove every void and every thirst and it will produce within you eternal life. And so Christ represents the temple and the door and the fountain. He is the source of the living water that rage like a river and never run dry. He is the very centerpiece of this vision. These living waters flow out from the very essence of who Jesus is. And I'd like to explore three elements of what this water represents because it carries profound implications for us. First, in John chapter 15, verse number 3, Jesus said, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, the Bible tells us that Christ sanctified and cleansed the church with the washing of water by the word. And so this living water that flows from the fountain in out of the temple, may represent the message of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ started as a slow flow. It was prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The angel proclaimed it at his birth. The early disciples propagated it with boldness in the face of opposition and persecution. And the ancient world was turned upside down according to Acts chapter 17. And now the word flows like a mighty river and it moves with power and it can't be stopped and it runs to the dry and the desolate places and it meets people at their greatest need no matter how low or far they are this is the gospel secondly these waters that flow from the fountain may also represent the sacrificial flow that was poured out from Christ's broken body. The Bible says in John chapter 19, verse 34, after Christ's side was speared, pierced, blood and water poured out. This is grace. God placed his greatest love on the altar of sacrifice for us. Christ took the blame for our sin. He was declared guilty by God himself. He embraced the wrath of his father. His blood was spilled and he paid the ultimate price all because of grace. And this water from the fountain, this is grace that is poured out from his wounds and from his broken heart. And it flows down to fill the holes in the needs, in the voids, in the empty places of the hurting human heart. And it runs to meet literally the living dead. This is grace. Lastly, in John chapter 7, in verse 37, the Bible said, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, 
Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. And so the raging river of revival and renewal represents the person of the Holy Spirit. He is the most powerful force in the universe. And he comes down from the temple. And because of love, he moves through the deserts of desolation in the lowlands. And he flows into the Dead Sea seeking the lost and the lifeless. This is the Holy Spirit. And so we know the interpretation. Christ represents the temple and the door and the fountain. These living waters symbolize the gospel, grace in the Holy Spirit. Lastly, we have the application. I love it that Ezekiel walked through the waters. He experienced them firsthand. He walked in the water. And we just mentioned that this water represents the gospel and grace and the Holy Spirit. And the only way that you can be a partaker of the incredible promises within this vision, the only way that you can truly commit your way into the Lord is if you are willing to walk in the gospel, to walk in grace, and to walk in the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to touch on three, each of these three elements very quickly because I do have a timer. First, we are called to walk in the gospel. Walking in the gospel is to embrace Scripture as the supreme priority of your life. And that implies that your worldview and your choices are not defined and dictated by things like popular opinion, by fluctuating emotions, by feelings and whims and impulses. All of that is superseded by the revelation of truth as revealed in Scripture. We are living in a very unique time in history. There is a thick fog of confusion and deception that permeates throughout our culture. Basic bedrock principles are being labeled as hatred, intolerance, prejudice, hostility. And the new arbiter that determines the moral standard of right and wrong is something called social consensus. And it seems that if you don't join hands with that philosophy, the backlash is severe. But the Bible says something very simple about social consensus. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse number 21, the Bible says, Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not go unpunished. And what that means is that the moral lawgiver will always have the final word. We are living in difficult times. And maybe you feel it. Maybe you are losing your footing in life. Maybe your focus is becoming blurred. Maybe your affections are being drawn away from your first love. Maybe it's getting hard to say no to the things that you once abhorred. The answer and the solution 
is to run to the word. It is a strong tower. It is a mighty fortress. It is a place of refuge in safety in clarity. You become tethered to reality in the word. You see how life is and how it should be. And so to walk in the gospel is to revere the word and to love it more than life itself. It is to crave, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness and his approval and to immerse yourself within the power of scripture. And to do it with a teachable spirit and a surrendered heart. And when you are surrendered to the authority of scripture, and when you are connected to the word in a sincere and meaningful way, the natural byproduct of that is an evidence of hope that comes from your life. And so lastly, to walk in the gospel is to not be ashamed of the hope that saved you. Secondly, we are called to walk in grace. As born-again believers, we are within the process of being conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. And we know that there is no growth without grace. The lifeblood of the born-again believer is to be on a lifelong journey, on a relentless pursuit of chasing and reaching for the gold standard of Christ's life. And the power of grace enables us to exert maximum effort and devotion and to give the tra- chase of a lifetime and to grab hold of his example with sincerity and intensity. And to walk in grace is to be fully engaged and completely committed to following the footsteps of Christ and to mimic his example. But it's always a choice. In the moment that we stop reaching for the pattern of his life, we become casualties of mediocrity. Lastly, we are called to walk in the Spirit. The songwriters and the poets tell us that life is a stage. What is on the stage of your life? Normally, it's the diploma and the certificate of recognition that takes center stage And then the trophies and the medals and the ribbons flank either side. And then those large, glossy portraits and pictures that illustrate what we can achieve and earn and buy and possess. They crowd that stage. You see the house and the cars and the toys. And a lot of times... We see these things as accolades that tell our story. And so more often than not, we anchor our identity in those trinkets. And we aspire to be the star of the stage of our lives. And we soak in the spotlight. But as born-again believers, we are empowered to clear the stage In John chapter 3, verse number 30, John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And to walk in the Spirit is to be willing to be minimized so that He can be magnified and so that He can showcase His glory and His character on the stage of your life. But you need to be willing to clear the stage. 
I read about Ezekiel. And I think, wouldn't it be great to be submerged within that flow? This scripture confronts me. And I have to ask myself, am I truly immersed or am I just dipping a toe in the flow? Because I think it's possible that there may be some ankle-high believers. And as long as they can feel the traction of self-reliance under them, they'll stay in the flow. As long as they have control. They don't want to be dictated by the flow. They don't chase after the standard in the example of Christ's life. Because they just settle. Everyone fails. Everyone falls. Everyone misses the mark. And so they resign themselves to accepting failure. And so they stay in the shallow end because everyone else's, their commitment is only a few inches deep. I believe it's possible that there are some knee-high believers. And their praise in praise and worship has an asterisk above it. There are strings attached. There's fine print. And what that means is that when this flow crashes against the stage of their lives and clears it, they get frustrated, disappointment, agitated, because they only worship when things go their way. They only worship when they can stand on the stage. And so their commitment is only two feet deep. I believe that it's possible for there to be some waist-high believers They go through life dictated by the gut. They're steered by fluctuating emotions. And so when it comes to share their testimony, to express their love for the cure, they won't go if it makes them feel uncomfortable. And so their commitment is only three feet deep. But there are those who allow themselves to be fully immersed within the flow. And they are swept away and they're brought to incredible places that can never be marked or circled on that map of expectations. And lastly, they are brought into the safe harbor of his arms. And that's where I want to be because their commitment is total. It's hard to leave tonight without taking one last look at life in the lowlands. Because I see some of you out there, if you haven't said yes to Christ, and you are just aimlessly floating about that dead sea. You have an inner tube. That's your life supply. With two handles on either side. And a lot of times you see those storms of life coming. Those clouds are just rolling in. Like Brother Phil talked about on Sunday. And they toss you, but you hold on so tight, your hands are blistered, they're cut, and they're bleeding, but you hold on. Every so often, something brushes up, up against your leg. You don't want to even think about what that might be. And just then you realize that air is seeping out of your inner tube. And you know 
in this Dead Sea, when this life supply is depleted, you are swallowed under. And if you only knew what was on that ocean floor, it's littered with the debris of tragedy, brutal stories, and they all sound exactly the same. It didn't have to be this way. And so, two quick questions in 30 seconds. How much breath do you have left? If you are sick and tired of just barely holding on, when all hope is lost, if you listen quietly, you will hear the rush the power of a mighty river, and all you have to do is reach out and get swept away in its life-creating flow. Secondly, the sermon is over. Which cup did you choose? Amen. Wonderful, gracious, holy Father God, what a tremendous image you have given us tonight. Father, clearly the precious flow of the blood of your Son, the Spirit in that blood went out through this place tonight. That precious flow, that powerful flow, Father, and we pray that the wave of that flow crashed on every heart here on every temple not made with hands that beats within every chest in the nearly thousand people in this place. And Father, we pray that that crash affects each and every one of us, that we would not hold hands with those of iniquity, that we would not turn again to the waters of bacteria, but we would turn only to those waters that bring new life, Father. We know that that water from your Son is the only water to cleanse. And that, Father, you do not look on the past water of bacteria of our lives, but you look to the future where the flow might take us. And may we all be submerged believers when we leave this place tonight, that your gospel may go out strong, nearly a thousand strong. Father, we pray in the precious name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.